Well, good morning. Great to see you all uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, um, please turn to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses uh, 15 to 21 today. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Now, uh, if you don't have a physical Bible with you, uh, there should be a pew Bible that's in front of you. And it's on page, it should be on page 973. <clears throat> and I'll also add that uh, that Bible is our gift to you if you'd like to take it home. It's our hope and prayer that uh, through the reading of God's Word that you will come into an encounter with a God who uh, is eager and is longing to meet with you. Now before we uh, get into today's passage, let me just um, say a quick word of thanks um, for those of you that may not be aware um, <clears throat> My wife and I welcomed our third child, Aria, uh, into the world uh, back in December. And since then, we've been, Helen and I, we've been overwhelmed uh, by your generosity and by your welcome and your concern, your care and your prayers. Um, it has been an unbelievable time, uh, not just through the uh, ministry of the meals ministry. Uh, we were well taken care of, well stocked. Uh, but not only that, uh, we just had random people leave gifts uh, to us, some of some of you I was able to thank, and thank you for that, and others of you just anonymously, without a note, uh, left gifts at our door, and so we are just so thankful. And if you did, please don't be shy. Uh, let us know that it was you uh, that left those gifts for us. We love to, um, we love to give you thanks uh, for all the ways in which you blessed uh, our family. Now, <clears throat> with that being said, uh, we're going through a sermon series in the book of Galatians, and let me kind of situate us to where we are at right now. Uh, we saw in the previous text last week uh, that Paul has this moment of intense uh, confrontation with Peter. Now, what was that confrontation about? It was about, it, was, it happened because Peter, uh, even though he was previously fine uh, eating with uh, Gentiles, uh, when he saw that there was a group of people that were these kind of hyper-conservative uh, religious types that came, called, that called themselves a circumcision party, uh, what Paul finds is that Peter begins to distance himself from the Gentiles. When he finds that there were others that would have presumably frowned upon his company uh, when they showed up. And at this point, uh, through this confrontation, I think it's important for us to understand the kind of tension that must have been palpable in the air. But what you need to understand is that Peter and Paul at the time, in the life of the early church, were kind of like spiritual fathers uh, to many in the community. And so for the people at the time to see Peter and Paul kind of get into it was kind of, would have been kind of like seeing your parents. Uh, get into a really serious argument. And many of you, including myself, may have painful memories of that happening in your life. And when your parents are going at it, you're kind of on pins and needles and you're nervous as to what is about to happen and you experience a lot of discouragement. And if it gets out of hand, some of us have experienced trauma uh, because of that. So the question is, why would Paul do this? Why confront Peter in this way? And why do it publicly? Couldn't he have kind of brought Peter to the side and say, hey, you're kind of uh, not acting in line with the gospel. Let's shape up and kind of go back out there and be a good example for the people around us. Why stir things up so much? Why create potentially uh, hurtful memories for the people in the church? 
And the passage today, Paul explains why he does that. He gives the theology behind why he confronted Peter in the way that he does. And so with that being said, let's get into today's passage. Let me read it for us. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down... I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." Amen. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot of loaded, heavy theological words in there. And mind you, he's saying these things as an explanation for why he was confronting Peter. And it's almost as if, you know, when you're talking to a child and the child questions what you are doing, Oftentimes, it's much easier to just kind of explain it away than to have to actually sit down and stoop to their level of intellect and explain it to them. So you purposely, I don't know if you've ever done this. I confess I've done it with my child. You purposely use big words and vague reasoning until your child just kind of throw their hands up in the air. It's like, okay, I don't know what you're saying. (laughs) But I guess what you did was right. Is that what Paul is doing here? No, I suggest that's not what he is doing. At the heart of the passage, at the heart of the passage is the heart of the gospel that was directly being impacted by Peter's words. And so he's using words that would have been familiar to the people at the time, as we will see. And as we get to the heart of Paul's reasoning for why he did what he did, and the gospel that he wants to make clear is the word and the term justification. And that is what I want to focus on this morning for us, justification. And so we'll look at this heavy and loaded term under three headings. Justification does two things. One, it helps define who I am. Second, justification helps define who we are. And lastly, justification points to what drives us as a community. One, justification defines who I am, defines who we are, and points us to what drives us as a community. And so let's take a look at these three things. First, justification defines who I am. Now, let me read the beginning of this passage for you again. Paul says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's focus on the word justified here. Now, to put it as simply as possible, right, sifting through all of the religious jargon, I would say justified means to be acceptable in the sight of God. 
to be acceptable in the sight of God. Now, one thing that we need to understand about this word is that this has nothing to do with what you do or how you, uh, how you have conducted yourself in the past. It has nothing to do with what you've done. It has everything to do with how you are seen. And so it would say, if you are justified in God, even if you are full of sin, even if you are living in sin, it means that you are seen as if you have never sinned and as if you have always obeyed in the sight of God. Right? That's what it means to be justified in God. Now, <clears throat> having said this, many times in Christian circles and the way it's explained, it's explained formulaically. Here's what I mean. Uh, how it's often taught is this. In your natural state, before you become a Christian, the teaching goes, there's this vast gulf, right, between you and God. But if you were to understand this need for this God, and if you were to say the sinner's prayer, if you will, and if you were to invite Jesus into your heart, what happens? Poof, you're justified. Right, your sins go to Jesus, his righteousness comes to you, and now you are saved. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of truth that is conveyed in that kind of teaching, but what I would like to present to you is that it misses a key aspect of this word. Because the word justification, to be justified, is not just a formulaic word. It's not just a, a, a chant that you can kind of say and salvation is kind of conjured up. The word justification is a deeply relational word. Now, there's a lot to be said here, but let me, let me just put it this way. <clears throat> Let's say you and I, uh, this coming week, we're supposed to meet up for coffee. And you're there waiting at the coffee shop, and you're waiting for a long time, and I'm not there. 30 minutes go by, an hour goes by, and finally, after about an hour and a half, right, I come running in through the doors of the coffee shop, and I sit down. And at that point, inevitably, there's a bit of a strain in our relationship. We said we would meet at a certain time, but I did not keep my word. I did not keep my commitment to you. So there's a strain. But you know what? I run in and say, you know what? I'm so sorry. And then I proceed to tell you an epic story, right, of how I witnessed a robbery in progress, and I conjure up all of my muscles and martial arts skills or whatever, and I, and I, and I fight the robbers down to the ground, and I tie them up, and I, and, I, and, I, and, I wait, and I had to wait for the police to come, and I had to give a report chronicling my heroic deeds. It never happened in real life. But at that point... You look at me and say, wow, that was an amazing thing that you did. At great potential cost to yourself, you stopped the robbery from happening and protecting all of these people. Now, what's happening at the time? My story that is told doesn't change the fact that I was an hour and a half late. Right? It doesn't change the fact that you had to wait around for an hour and a half. My story doesn't give you an hour and a half of your life back. But in your eyes, what happens? My lateness, because of my story, when it is immersed into the narrative of the circumstances of my life that led up to this point, my lateness is now justified in your eyes. 
See, my lateness, when it's immersed in that story, heals the strain of that relationship. Right? That's what it means to be justified in the sight of God. When you're justified in the sight of God, it means all of you, right, including your flaws, including all of your weaknesses and bad decisions and evil deeds, are now seen through and immersed into the story of Jesus and through his perfect life and his death that is offered up to God for you. And through that story, in the sight of God, you are now justified. And again, just because you are justified doesn't mean that you are now magically uh, perfect in your morality. It doesn't mean all of your uh, offenses towards God and towards others all of a sudden disappear. No, it means that when God sees you immersed into the story of Jesus, you are seen as perfectly righteous. And the broken relationship between you and God is now healed. At this point, I want to press in on this concept a little bit and maybe apply it to our lives. See, every other religion sees people as a binary. Every other religion sees people as righteous or a sinner. Or maybe some religions would say uh, a believer or a heathen. And so typically, if you get a religious testimony apart from uh, the gospel of Christianity, here's how a religious testimony goes. It would say, I was once a sinner, right? But I, but I got religion. Now I'm less a sinner. So maybe in the beginning I was uh, 80% sinner and maybe 20% saint, right? I'm not all that bad after all. But once I got religion, I see myself now maybe as a 55% sinner and 45% saint. And my ultimate goal is by being a good person, by being a good religious person, my ultimate goal is for me to eventually be 0% sinner and 100% saint. But what the Christian doctrine of justification tells us is that it does not work that way. These percentages are thrown out. And here's how justification defines who we are as individuals. And here's how Martin Luther put it. He says, you are simultaneously a sinner and a saint. Simultaneously a sinner and just. He would say you are simultaneously defeated and victorious. He would say you are simultaneously a failure yet a success. He would say you are simultaneously ashamed yet honored. And so in that sense, a Christian is a walking contradiction. See, the world likes to divide the world into good people and bad people, and a Christian steps in and says, I am absolutely both. Now, here's what this means for you and me. If you're a Christian, you know how to hold tears and laughter together. Why? Because on the one hand, your sins are always before you. They're there. Right? You don't try to cover it. You don't get defensive about it. Right? You don't try to justify yourself. But at the same time, 
having your sins always before you and experiencing sorrow over them, at the same time, there's this resolute, unshakable joy and confidence that permeates through you, even though there's sorrows over your sin. Why? Because you know that your identity is not defined by the stories of your success and failures. But you know that ultimately, your identity is defined by the story of Jesus' success experienced for you. See, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, and we'll talk about the word faith in a second. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, there's no longer this need for any of us, any of you, to justify your existence to the world, to anybody else, because the arbiter and judge of the universe, justification tells us, looks at you with the same kind of approval, with the same kind of love and adoration that he has for his son Jesus. You don't need to prove anything to anybody else if you are justified in God. And friends, you know what that produces. It produces freedom in you. I wonder if you've experienced the freedom that comes from the gospel. The kind of freedom that allows you to be humble enough to freely acknowledge your sins, to freely acknowledge the ways in which you fall short, freely acknowledge your weaknesses, and not have to hide it, not have to cover over it. But at the same time, confident enough to stand tall in the midst of it with full knowledge that God has His favor on you and you have no need to justify your existence to anybody else. There's a quote from a writer named John White, and I heard it time and time again um, from Pastor Tim Keller over the years. And it says, well may, listen to this, it says, well may the accuser roar of ills that I have done I know them all, I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. You want to come at me? You want to accuse me of all of my weaknesses, of all of the ways in which I fall short by your standards, the standards of the world, the standards that were put on you? You want to do that to me? Guess what? I know who I am. And I know myself enough to know that, man, there are weaknesses and sins and evil thoughts that I have that you don't even know about. A thousand more. But Jehovah God, the judge of the universe, justified me. Right? Justification defines who we are as individuals as freed people who are worthwhile, who are honored in the sight of God. So that's the first thing. Justification defines who we are as individuals. But secondly, justification defines not just who I am as an individual, but defines who we are as a community. Now let me read for you the first two verses again. 
It says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That's a tongue twister right there. But other than the word justified, what are the two words that stand out to you that are repeated? The words faith and law. Now, those two words are key to understanding what's going on here. Because remember, this isn't Paul just giving a theological truth, right? That just applies to individuals. No, he's saying this in the context of his confrontation with Peter. So the entire community is watching. And so uh, it's likely that what Paul is saying, he's applying it to the entire community. It It has implications for how God's community is formed. And the two words that stand in contrast to one another are faith and law. Paul's saying you are justified by faith and not by the law. Now, what in the world does faith mean? Now, it's easy enough for those of us that have grown up in the church to perhaps try and kind of define what it is in kind of religious speak. But really, what makes it hard to define is that we're trying to define faith as something that we do. Something that is done from our initiative. You know what? Times are hard. Just have faith. What do you mean? Have, I, I have no idea what that means. Just clench my fist and tell myself things are going to be okay? I, I don't know. Is that what it means? Because I think deep down inside of us, our common sense tells us that you can't do that. Common sense tells us that you can't just put your faith in anyone unless that person proves themselves to be faithful to you. If a parent is abusive and unpredictable, you don't need to teach a child to not trust their parents. They instinctively know that. They can't live by faith in their parents. Why? Because their parents have not proven to be faithful. But if the parents are faithful, if they are trustworthy, if they are loving and kind, if they are gentle, if they are nurturing, if they are protective, then a child can live free. A child can live by faith, with gratitude, with loyalty to one's parents. See, that's what it means to live by faith. It's a two-way street. God and Jesus Christ proves himself to be faithful and all that he asks in return of his children is to receive his faithfulness in their lives and to live according to it. That's what it means to live by faith. And as God justifies individuals by his faithfulness who then live by faith, what he does is he creates a community for himself that is governed under the rule of faith. Here's what theologian N.T. Wright says. He says, faithfulness, or faith, runs in both directions, from God to us, and in response, us to God, and thereby constituting an entire community precisely as a community, not just a group of like-minded individuals. 
He says, such a community marked out by this two-way faithfulness will inevitably perceive itself and be perceived by others as a socio-political reality. It is neither a family united by actual ties of blood and kinship, nor a city united by geographical location and shared civic history and polity. It is something else. A trans-ethnic family, a trans-local polis. That's what unites the people of God. Right? This faith and the faithfulness of Jesus is what defines the Christian community and it defines who we are as a church. You know, uh, bringing this back to last week's uh, passage, here's what Paul saw Peter doing. You guys remember when the circumcision party showed up? We saw that Peter drifted. Right? Instead of fellowshipping with the Gentiles, and mealtimes, by the way, in that context, had religious connotations, so it wasn't just about table manners that Paul was talking about. But by refusing to sit with and eat with the Gentiles, Peter was essentially saying it is no longer faith that marks the Christian community, but law, right? The Jewish rules and regulations. Now, do you see why it was so uh, dangerous to Paul that Peter was doing this? For Paul, it wasn't just a, a matter of... Uh, bad table manners. It wasn't just a matter of uh, jeopardizing this good multi-ethnic, right, multicultural vibes that they had going on in Antioch, right? And it wasn't even about Peter, right, violating a key application of the gospel. No, by distancing himself from the Gentiles, the people that were considered to be outside of the religious community, Peter was jeopardizing the gospel message itself, Right, because he was saying by his actions, it is no longer about faith, but it's about something else. And this is why Paul was so strongly against it. And if you look later on in Galatians, you'll hear it. Paul uses some very strong language towards the Judaizers, towards the people that were coming in and trying to impose the Jewish rules and regulations on Gentiles. Now, <clears throat> At this point, uh, it's actually really important for us to be careful not to paint the Jewish people as caricatures. Why? Because in understanding where they were coming from, we actually get to understand our hearts. You see, for the Jewish people of God, even going all the way back to the book of Genesis on, for the Jewish people of God, it was absolutely crucial that they kept themselves pure from the effects of outsiders. The Jewish people, the chosen people of God, keeping their purity and being one people of God was absolutely crucial. And, and they would say, and the Old Testament makes that clear, that the salvation of the world depended on it. Depended them maintaining their status quo as the chosen people of God. And you have to understand where they were coming from. You understand the Jewish people in ancient history had a painful history. 
They experienced one invasion after another, one form of oppression and persecution after another. And the one thing that they were able to hold on to was their rules and regulations, what, they, what made them distinct from the nations, and holding on to the promise that one day the Messiah will come through them and save the world. And it was central to their identity. And here comes Paul, right, who was supposed to be their champion, right? This elite Pharisee, well-educated, could quote Scripture left and right, now saying and telling everyone that those rules and regulations don't matter. Now, you know what? If I'm being honest, I'll be lying if I told you that I wouldn't be marked by fear and concern if I was a Jewish person at the time. Because I'll be asking, without these rules and regulations, are we just going to let anybody in? Right? And that's the objection that Paul is anticipating if you look at verse 17. Right? He says, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And he says, certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Here's the objection that Paul is answering to. He's saying, if it's all about faith in Jesus and the Jew-Gentile distinctions don't matter anymore, then the objection will go, then is it fine that we become sinners like them too? And then they're asking, is Jesus, through this new community that he's creating through faith and promoting sin? Paul would say, absolutely not. He's saying it was Jesus who destroyed the power and effects of sin in both Jew and Gentile. So why would I build it back up? And here's the core of that fear. People are saying, yes, we get it about faith. We can can grant you that. It's all well and good. But what if we let those people in? Would it not taint us too? Right? People from that neighborhood. People from that socioeconomic background, people from that side of the political aisle, people with that kind of lifestyle and ethic, people with those particular struggles, you're going to let them in? No, that's going to taint the whole thing that we got going on here. Last week, uh, Pastor Aaron highlighted the segregated nature of our churches today. Now, I don't believe for a second that that is a result of individuals like you and me seething with hatred, shunning people out. How does it happen? It happens bit by bit. With little experiences of discomfort that we run away from in the sight of people that we feel uncomfortable with. It's fear. The fear of losing our way of life. The fear of losing the way we interact with one another. So what are the barriers that we are putting up that people from other backgrounds are having to overcome to be a part of our community? Because friends, it takes work. It takes work and diligence to cultivate and maintain the freedom of the gospel that tells us that it is faith in Jesus Christ that unites a community. And to break away from the fear and anxiety that we have over the protection of our communities. See, the church is defined by its faith 
in Jesus Christ. And the work is cultivating that, making sure that we are aligned with what unites us. But that also means overcoming a lot of discomfort. There are going to be people that are different from you, people that feel very strongly about about the things that you would disagree with. So what is going to allow us to be the kind of community that exemplifies, that showcases the gospel to the watching world around us? That's the third point. And we'll try to make this quick. Lastly, justification points us to the thing that drives us. Now here, I want to read one of the most inspiring, beautiful confessions of faith and mission that I find in all of Scripture. It comes from verses 19 to 21. Here's Paul. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Now, there's a lot here. But what Paul is, is alluding to here is the one doctrine that undergirds all other doctrines that talk about salvation, justification included, and it's the doctrine of the union with Christ, of union with Christ. It's what tells us, binds us to Jesus. We become one with Jesus. Paul says, I died to the law. I died to all of the old ways that I thought I could be right with God. I died to all of the old ways that I thought I could uh, prove myself to be in community with others. I died to all of those things. But he says, death was not the end. Because at the end of death, he says, I found life. I found life with Christ. And listen to what Paul has to say. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, if you're just kind of listening, and if you don't have any kind of religious background, that might sound a little bit crazy. Like Paul is losing it. What does he mean? I'm crucified with Christ? I no longer live? And somebody else is living their life through me? Does that mean Paul is losing his sense of self? Right? Is that what Christian life is about? You stop being you, and you just follow Jesus. Here's what's interesting. <clears throat> if you listen to uh, the philosophers that analyze our modern secular culture, they say this. They say, isn't it ironic, with all of the efforts in our modern day, about the values that are placed in finding oneself, right? That's what it's all about, right? Individuality. I need to find out who I am and I need to express who I am. And with all of their efforts to find themselves, that isn't it ironic that out of all of the generations that have come before us, that we're a generation that perhaps has the thinnest sense of identity? We are perhaps the most insecure generation when it comes to being secure with who we are. It's ironic. The more we try to find ourselves, we lose the sense of self. And they would say that without a belief in God or something greater than yourself, you're just left floating. You have no idea who you are. You can't make sense of your purpose or your destiny or identity. 
And commentators would say that that's at least part of the reason why we live in such an ideologically and politically divided world today. Why? Because the Bible tells us that we are made to lose ourselves in something bigger than ourselves. We are made to lose ourselves in God. But without God in the picture, we're going to gravitate to something. We're going to gravitate to something. And a political party, an extreme ideology, they become what? Counterfeit gods that pretend to give us meaning and purpose and a sense of self. But here's the problem. Those things leave us empty. And instead of driving us to love, driving us to peace and joy everlasting, it drives us to hatred and anger and complaint and fear. But here, Paul says, here's a God you can absolutely lose yourself in. Because this is a God who doesn't have his arms crossed, just waiting to see if you slip up, who is waiting to see if you measure up to him. Paul says, here's a God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He's saying, here's a God who has been and is and will be faithful to you. And all he asks us return is to live in faith. Right? To live in the confidence and gratitude that befits the faithfulness of the king that we serve. Right? And that faith in that faithful king who is for us and not against us is what is going to unite us. Let me just close with this. <clears throat> I don't know how many of you guys watched the movie Encanto. Must have watched that movie like three times. Highly recommend it. Watch it with your children. If you don't have children, watch it by yourselves. It's that good. I watched it maybe three times, and each time, each viewing, I moved to tears. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with the story, it's actually, it's really a classic immigrant story. It's a story of a matriarch of a family who's driven out of her hometown by invaders who came and pillaged her town. And she, during the journey of escape, uh, loses her husband. And in the grief of, out of the grief of losing her husband, there's this enchanted world that rises up and envelopes her and the rest of her family and her community. And what you find throughout the movie is that she's driven by this desperate need to keep the magic alive. After all, she lost her husband. She can't lose her family. And this magical, perfect world that is around her too. And so everybody needs to behave. Everybody's life needs to be absolutely perfect. Right? If there's a fault or a weakness, right, you don't talk about it. You don't talk about Bruno. I know who of you watched it now. <laughs> but what happens over the course of the movie is that the magic slowly starts dying out. Now, spoiler alert, I don't think I'm giving it away. But it's only when the matriarch comes face to face with the trauma of what she experienced, when she's able to accept the flaws and weaknesses of her family. It's only when the wrong kind of magic Magic that's built on perfection dies out. It's then and only then that the true magic can rise up again. One that is built on unconditional acceptance. One that is built on unconditional love. That's such a beautiful story of the gospel. You really have to watch it. It's good. 
Friends, every time, every time you welcome somebody into your life that you otherwise should have nothing to do with, whenever you enter into a world of someone who is so different from you and makes you uncomfortable, do you realize you experience a tiny bit of death? Death to your old way of life. Death to life as usual. Death to the life as you know it. But as you do so, you are being built up in new life. Life of faith. Faith that binds people across cultures, across political difference. The kind of faith that has a power to unite the world. Philippians 2, Revelation 7 tells us that when Jesus comes back, all tribes and tongue confess Jesus as Lord. That is the Lord that you serve. So if there's any of you that are here or watching today, you feel like you don't belong at church. You're different than all of the Christians that you've seen. I want you to know that you are welcome here. Jesus made sure of that. He went all the way outside of the gates, was crucified on the cross to welcome you in. You don't need to prove your existence to anyone. You don't need to justify your existence before anything. But as you live in the freedom that comes from knowing that you are justified in Christ, may we look onto one another with eyes of faith and reach across with hands of love, knowing that we are bought with, a, bought with a price. The flesh that we live in now, may we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, God, <clears throat> we thank you for your word uh, this morning. We thank you for the truth of the gospel that tells us that we are justified in your sight, our relationship with you secure, and therefore we know that we are, our relationship with others can be secured as well, not because of anything that we are able to bring to the table and not pushed out by anything that makes us different, but solely through faith in Jesus we are able to come together across differences. And so, God, with that power, will you unite us? Will you unite our church as one? And by your grace, O oh God, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, may this be so. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let us all please stand as we close with our final song.